Hi everyone, welcome back to Logical Bible Study, and in this podcast we look at the the Mass reading for today, particularly the Gospel reading, and we want to look really in depth at the text of the Gospel to find out what was the Gospel author trying to communicate to those first century Christians. So we're doing an exegesis of the Gospel text from a Catholic perspective. And we're looking today at Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. So the very last part of the Gospel of Matthew. The eleven disciples set out for Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had arranged to meet them. When they saw him, they fell down before him, though some hesitated. Jesus came up and spoke to them. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all the commands I gave you. And know that I am with you always. Yes, to the end of time. So it's a fairly short passage, but there's a lot packed into those five verses. We always want to start by asking, what's the context? What has happened just prior to this in the gospel? Well, if you read the start of Matthew 28, which is the last chapter of the gospel, Jesus has appeared to the women who are coming on their way back from the tomb, and he appears to them and they worship him, and he says, go and tell the brethren that I will see them in Galilee. So you'll hear that passage, that previous passage, on Easter Monday every year. So that's when you can hear the prelude to what we hear today. So today we get to the very last passage in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's read a couple of times in the liturgical year. Now one confusing aspect of this is it's read on the the Feast of the Ascension in year A. So once every three years, in year A, on the Day of Ascension... The church reads this particular gospel reading. But what's confusing about it is, if you've if you noticed when we read the passage, Jesus doesn't actually ascend in this passage. Uh, it appears to be a different occasion before he ascends. So let's just keep that in mind. What we're going to see here is Jesus giving what's called the Great Commission, which is apparently his 10th recorded appearance after his resurrection, although there was probably more than what's recorded. When does this occur? The timing is uncertain. Because it's not the day of his ascension, this occurs before his ascension. But it certainly took place sometime within those 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. So, let's start verse 16. It says, The eleven disciples, so by now Judas is dead, so there's only eleven left, set out for Galilee. So, they're going from Jerusalem, which is in the southern part of Israel, and they're going to the northern state, or one of the northern states called Galilee, and that would take a few days to get there. We know from verse 7 and 10 of this chapter, Jesus has told them that he's going to meet them in Galilee, and now they go to the mountain where Jesus had arranged to meet them. So the mountain is not identified in the text, and we also don't have it recorded where Jesus directs them to go to a specific mountain, although apparently he did. And we can learn some things from that. We know from this passage that there's some things that Jesus said to the apostles after his resurrection that are not recorded. This is evidence of that. So they go to the mountain. Verse 17, when they saw him, they fell down before him. So by this time, Jesus has appeared to them several times in his post-resurrection body. And by now, it appears that most of the apostles, 
believe him to be the son of God, and that's why they fall down. Now, it's not clear whether they're worshipping him, and they probably are worshipping him. And if that's the case, typically Jews only worshipped what they believed to be God. So if it's true that they're worshipping him, worshipping him here, then they believe him to be God. And that's quite an amazing statement. It could also be that they're not intending to worship him as God. Maybe they're just showing deep reverence and perhaps that's why they um, kneel down or they fall down before him. It does sound like worship though. The text then says, though some hesitated or doubted as other translations put it. Now, let's keep in mind who's here. It's only the 11 apostles, apparently, who are here, and some of them are hesitating. Other translations um, translate this wrongly. Other translations have this as they doubted, and that translation would imply that all of the apostles doubted. So I think the lectionary that we listen to gets it right here when it says some hesitated. Although, if you're listening in the USA... The USA uses a different lectionary translation to the rest of the world. It uses the New American Bible. And the New American Bible, if you go to Mass today, you will hear it does actually say they doubted. And I think that's not a good translation. What's going on here? Apparently, some of the apostles are still not yet entirely convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. Some out of the 11, we don't know how many, we don't know who they are, are not convinced. That's quite significant if you think about it. Often people today will say, if God would just show me a miracle, then I would believe. Well, here, as in other places in the gospel, Jesus has been doing some fairly phenomenal things and a lot of miracles right before their eyes, and yet some still do not believe. So miracles do not necessarily result in belief for all people because there's always other explanations for the miracles. If even the apostles couldn't be entirely convinced after seeing Jesus many times after his resurrection, then that should teach us something about the nature of human reasoning and about miracles. Now, the text, one last thing to make a comment to make here, it says, when they saw him, they fell down before him, though some hesitated. The some who hesitated, the text doesn't say they didn't fall down at all. It just says they hesitated before they did that. So they're kind of just half-hearted about it. Verse 18, Jesus says this to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And then he goes on from there. And we really want to pull apart this text. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth. It's a Jewish, we shouldn't read too much into this heaven and earth aspect of things because it's basically just a Jewish way of saying all authority, 100% of it. Jesus has attained absolute authority over all of creation through his resurrection. Now, it's true that as the second person of the Trinity, he he was always God, and so he always had all authority. But now in his humanity, because of his resurrection, he's now able to exercise his authority over all of creation in a glorified human way. This was actually predicted in Daniel 7.13, and often this is the Old Testament passage which is read on the day that this gospel is read out. In that passage, it's really interesting. It's a passage about the coming Son of Man in the Old Testament, and the prophecy there in Daniel 7 basically says, the Son of Man will be escorted into the throne room to the presence of God, and the power is given to the Son of Man so that all nations might serve him as their king. 
Essentially, that's what Jesus now says has happened to him here. He has received all authority from the Father. He says, it has been given to me. So the Father has given Jesus, the Son, absolute authority. Let's let's be clear on this. Jesus, at this point, now has the same authority that the Father himself has. There's no distinction there in terms of authority from this point onwards. Why has the Father given the Son authority? Well, it's for the purpose of building the kingdom of God. The Son has a special place in allowing the Father's kingdom to be built, and that's why the Father gives Jesus, the Son, all authority of God, in his humanity, that is. He allows the human Jesus to have the authority of God for the purposes of building the kingdom of God. And there's a lot that could be said about the Trinity in relation to how that works. Verse 19, he says to the apostles, Go therefore... Well, just stop there. Notice the word therefore. It's not a new thing. It's actually connected to the previous statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. So the implication appears to be since Jesus now has all authority, he's now bestowing on them authority to do things in his name. And in a sense, it appears that Jesus is transferring his own authority to them. He's making them vice regents on earth. He's the king and he's now kind of making them vice kings. He's giving them a share in his authority for the purpose of expanding his kingdom. They're going to expand it in his name, in his authority. Notice the word go there. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. Go. Directed particularly to the apostles, although it certainly does apply to all Christians as well. And what is the command? To make disciples. Now, Jesus is going to go on and tell them two specific things about what it means for someone to become a disciple. And they're quite surprising. It's not what you would expect. So we'll look at that when we get to it. What does it mean to be a disciple? But he says here, make disciples of all the nations. Up to this point, Jesus' mission had basically been just for the Jews. But now Jesus says the time has come for the kingdom of God to be opened up and preached to all people, all the nations. And that would include Gentiles. That's actually predicted in the Old Testament as well. Even if you look at the story of Abraham, God says to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. That's in Genesis 22. What we see here is a very significant transition in God's plan of salvation. Most of us listening will be Gentiles, so it doesn't seem that significant to us. We just take it for granted. But this point where Jesus says, go to all the nations, this is significant because now the kingdom of God is no longer restricted to Jews. It is open to all people. And we know from history that by the time the last apostle died, they basically had done this. They had preached to the vast majority of the known world at that time. And then he says to them, do this, baptizing them. So the apostles had already done some baptisms during the ministry of Jesus. We see that particularly in the gospel of John. Whenever someone decided to become a follower of Jesus, or at least some people, it appears to be the practice during Jesus' ministry that the apostles would baptize them. Now Jesus says, go and continue this practice all over the world. So the baptisms they've been doing during Jesus' ministry are practice for the large-scale baptisms they're now going to do all across the world. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. A very significant statement. This is the clearest expression of the Trinity in the Gospels and possibly in the entire New Testament. It's the clearest 
statement about what the Trinity is. Now, when Jesus says here, baptize in the name of, that's quite a significant phrase, and it's something we've talked about a bit in this podcast. It basically means to say, do this in the name of the Trinity, which is what they're essentially doing in the baptism. To do something in the name of means in accordance with the will and the authority of. So when someone is baptized by the apostles, they are doing it in accordance with the will and the authority of the Trinity. And it also means the person who's baptized is welcomed into that relationship with the Trinity. They become part of the very life of God and the family of God. So baptism is a significant entrance into the will and the family of the Trinity. Notice Jesus doesn't want them to be baptized in the name of the apostles. It's in the name of the Trinity. He wants the apostles to be really clear that they are making disciples for God and for his kingdom and not for themselves. This is the baptismal formula that Jesus gives. It's the only time when Jesus says, here's exactly how to baptize. Baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, that's the formula that the Catholic Church insists we must use. In order for a baptism to be valid, according to the Catholic Church, it has to be done in the name of the Trinity. Usually it's not sufficient to just say in the name of the Holy Spirit or in the name of God. It needs to specify the Trinity in some way. And the Church says that that's how baptisms have to be done, because that's what Jesus commands here. Sometimes um, some Christian groups might raise an objection to that because later in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, it does say that baptisms are done, quote, in the name of Jesus. But most scripture scholars believe that when it says baptism in the name of Jesus, it's just a shorthand way of referring to Christian baptism. And the author of the book of Acts, Luke, is using that phrase, the name of Jesus, to contrast Christian baptism with other baptisms which existed in the Jewish world at the time. So it's not like in the book of Acts, the apostles went around just saying, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. It's just Luke's shorthand way of recording Christian baptisms that were happening. In the book of Acts, the apostles would almost certainly have been using the formula that Jesus gives them here. The fact that Jesus includes baptism here as one of the two essential requirements of being a disciple, that makes it pretty clear that he expects baptism to be done whenever a person decides to follow Jesus. It's not an optional extra. It is a requirement of being a disciple. You need to be baptized. That's what Jesus says here. That's one of the two requirements of being a disciple. And then he gives us the second requirement in verse 20. And it might surprise you as to what it is. He says, teaching them to observe all the commands I gave you. So it's a command for obedience. Jesus says a disciple is someone who follows the instructions of a teacher. And that's what it was in that culture. That's what the word means, to follow a teacher. So this is a command for the apostles to teach people, to teach new believers, the commandments of Jesus. If people choose to follow the commandments of Jesus, then by definition, they become followers or disciples of Jesus. Notice that to be a disciple of Jesus means to follow Jesus, not just to believe that he is Lord, but to actually follow him and his commandments. For the apostles, teaching and preaching were inseparable. Whenever they preached the kingdom of God, they would teach people the commandments of Jesus. They were all bound up together. And we should keep that in mind as part of our own uh, preaching of the kingdom as well. 
to be a disciple and to make a new disciple means to get someone to follow Jesus' commandments. What are the commandments? Well, it's basically everything Jesus has given and said throughout his ministry because the apostles heard all of those. And that would include even the tough ones like the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus expects Christian believers to follow all of his commandments. That is his will. The word here for teaching them to observe all the commands I give you, it can legitimately be translated disciplining them. That's derived from the word disciple. So that's got kind of a harsher tone, hasn't it? We probably haven't heard that translation before, but that's the basic connotation. Make disciples of all nations is equivalent to saying discipline people, discipline the nations. He then adds this at the end, and know that I am with you always. So the apostles know, well, the apostles don't know, but they're going to experience extreme persecution in the coming years after Jesus is gone. Jesus knows that. And he wants the apostles to know that even when it seems like Jesus has abandoned them, because it's going to seem like that when the persecution gets really tough, in reality, he has not abandoned them. I am with you always. This is a promise to the apostles. Then there's this controversial phrase which finishes the book of Matthew. It's generated a lot of controversy. Our translation says, Know that I am with you always to the end of time. Now, a more literal translation of that would be to the close of the age. So the debate revolves around what does this word age mean because it can be translated age or world or time. So what's going on here? Jews at the time of Jesus, as a result of particular prophecies in the Old Testament and uh, some other rabbinical writings, had come to believe that there was two basic ages in God's plan of salvation. There was the Old Age and the Messianic Age. You see this in particular in the book of Esdras, which never actually made it into the canon of the Old Testament. But it clearly says that God has made two ages, the Old Age and then what the Jews believed would be the Messianic Age. The New Testament does seem to teach that there are these two ages and that the old age finishes, concludes in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. That's when the old age finishes, which is actually after Jesus says these words here. So if the correct translation of this passage is to the close of the age, then Jesus is basically saying, I'll be with you until the end of the old age. And so he's promising to be with the apostles right up until the destruction of the temple. And that is, in fact, a good promise because right up to the destruction of the temple, the apostles experience extreme persecution and he's promising to be with them. When the temple was destroyed, basically a lot of the persecution stopped. So that interpretation would make sense that Jesus will be with them as long as the apostles are alive, and many of the apostles did survive until 70 AD. So that does seem to make good sense of what Jesus says here. It's a promise to the apostles specifically to be with them, even through the persecutions, right up until the persecutions stop in 70 AD. Now, that is one interpretation. It's not the majority interpretation, though. Because on the other hand, that word can be translated time or world, in which case... It would say something like, I am with you always to the end of time. And in that case, Jesus is promising to be with his church forever throughout all the ages. And that's how most scholars and commentators have taken it to be. But there is a real debate about it. And if you're interested in this idea of 
the two ages and the kingdom of God and the messianic age and Jewish expectations about the kingdom, then I've actually recorded a series of lectures about the kingdom of God, which goes into this very thing, the theology of the two ages. And that was something that I did for my local parish. And you can get access to the audio for those recordings by becoming a Patreon supporter of the ministry. So if you will pledge $20 a month or more to support this ministry, and I'd be very grateful if you would do that, then you can get access to all of the catechesis sessions that I do on the local level, including this series about the kingdom of God. And it's actually quite fascinating. So the link to the Patreon page, if you are interested in that, is in the show notes. So that is the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the largest of the Gospels. Now, where does this appear in the Catechism? All over the place. Uh, Because of Jesus' command here to go and preach the Gospel to all nations, and the Church basically sees that as her mission, that means it gets referenced a whole lot in the Catechism. So I'll include as many of these Catechism paragraph numbers in the show notes if you would like to look at them in your own time. But I want to read out, before we finish, a few really striking ones that link back here to, to Matthew chapter 28. So let's start with paragraph 644, and this is about Jesus' appearances after his resurrection. Thomas will also experience the test of doubt, and St. Matthew relates that during the risen Lord's last appearance in Galilee, some doubted. Therefore, the hypothesis that the resurrection was produced by the apostles' faith or credulity will not hold up. On the contrary, their faith in the resurrection was born under the action of divine grace, from their direct experience of the reality of the risen Jesus. So that's kind of an apologetic argument the Catechism makes as to why we can't say that the apostles just um, willed Jesus to be alive through their own imagination because we know that they did doubt when they saw Jesus. Paragraph 1120, this is about the sacraments, says the ordained priesthood guarantees that it really is Christ who acts in the sacraments through the Holy Spirit for the Church. The saving mission entrusted by the Father to his incarnate Son was committed to the apostles and through them to their successors. They received the Spirit of Jesus to act in his name and in his person. There's also a reference to the Great Commission in paragraph 2, the second paragraph of the Catechism. So I'll include that in the show notes too. Paragraph 849 is about the Church's mission. Having been divinely sent to the nations that she might be the universal sacrament of salvation, the Church, in obedience to the command of her founder, and because it is demanded by her own essential universality, strives to preach the gospel to all men. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, until the close of the age." Paragraph 1257 is about the necessity of baptism. It says the Lord himself affirms that baptism is necessary for salvation. He also commands his disciples to proclaim the gospel to all nations and to baptize them. Baptism is necessary for salvation for those to whom the gospel has been proclaimed and who have had the possibility of asking for this sacrament. So there's a bit of information there about the Catholic teaching about salvation and its link to baptism. Paragraph 232 is in the discussion about what it means to say something is done in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. 
Christians are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Before receiving the sacrament, they respond to a three-part question when asked to confess the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I do. The faith of all Christians rests on the Trinity. So since the Trinity is the core belief of all Christians, it makes sense that it's a core part of the baptism, which is the entrance requirement into becoming a Christian. Paragraph 831 And this is actually a discussion about the word Catholic. What does the word Catholic mean? Here the Catechism lists a few reasons, but it gives one reason, which links back to the Great Commission. It says, Secondly, the Church is Catholic because she has been sent out by Christ on a mission to the whole of the human race. All men are called to belong to the new people of God. This people, therefore, while remaining one and only one, is to be spread throughout the whole world and to all ages, in order that the design of God's will may be fulfilled. He made human nature one in the beginning, and has decreed that all his children who are scattered should be finally gathered as one. The character of universality which adorns the people of God is a gift from the Lord himself, whereby the Catholic Church ceaselessly and efficaciously seeks for the return of all humanity and all its goods, under Christ the head in the unity of his spirit." So you probably know that the word Catholic basically means universal, or rather, more literally, pertaining to the whole. And here the Catechism says one of the reasons for that is because the Church's mission is to the whole world, as Jesus says here. Paragraph 860 is about the Apostles' mission. It says, In the office of the Apostles there is one aspect that cannot be transmitted, to be the chosen witnesses of the Lord's resurrection and so the foundation stones of the Church. But their office also has a permanent aspect. Christ promised to remain with them always. The divine mission entrusted by Jesus to them will continue to the end of time since the gospel they handed on is the lasting source of all life for the church. Therefore, the apostles took care to appoint successors. And then we'll finish today with paragraph 2743, and it's a good one to finish on because it's really practical, about prayer. It says, it is always possible to pray. The time of the Christian is that of the risen Christ who is with us always, no matter what tempests may arise. Our time is in the hands of God. And that's quite a beautiful teaching there in the Catechism. When Jesus says, behold, I am with you always, that applies to us as individual Christians. Thank you for listening today. I hope you learned something new from these quite rich words in the Great Commission. Please share this around with others who you think would benefit from hearing this exegesis of the text. And hopefully we'll see you again tomorrow.